Michael McMullen. Welcome along to the World Snooker Tour podcast. My guest this week is one of the all-time greats. It's the three times world champion, Mark Williams. Mark, thanks for joining us. No problem. It's often been said that your background in Wales played a very big part in shaping your character. So what sort of environment was it that you grew up in? Um, yeah, it was good. It was tough, obviously, with the mine. Obviously, my father and grandfather was miners. And then, and then a strike and, and all st- stuff like that. Uh, you know, it was it was difficult times. And I, I mean, I, I went to a few strikes with my father. Got up early hours in the morning and it, it was mad, you know. It was just like a normal kick about with the football. And then, obviously, the, the buses would come, take the miners in. And then all hell would break loose then. It was like trying to get at the bus, you know, throwing stuff at the bus. And So you were on the picket lines? Yeah, I went to a couple uh, with my father, you, you know. I can't remember how old I was, but I would have been young. It was, like I said, it was just a, a friendly thing until then buses come and then it was just, the atmosphere just turned, you know, like that. It's, it's you know, very similar to the one of the scenes in Billy Elliot, you know, mm. and, 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 and I remember that a couple of times, which obviously um, was quite scary, but uh, there's only a couple of things I can remember um, about being young and, that's one of them, and the other one going down a pit with my father for a mm-hmm. for a shift, and you know none of them I want to do again. Yeah, and you've said that in the past that that was what made you realise you really wanted to work at the game and make that your career. Also, a lot of the towns that experienced that back in the eighties, it took them a long time to recover. So was that the case for your hometown as well? Yeah, I mean I'm not sure if they ever recovered from that. It was you know obviously it was really tight times for everyone. I don't think you realise. Uh, how, how hard it was until you look back now uh, and and read up and see what was going on and, and the rationings and stuff like that. Um, you know, at the time, I don't think you realise because obviously you're a youngster, you, you don't realise what your parents are going through. But it's only when you look back, you think, oh "God, it was so tough back then." Uh, you know, it was hard just to put food on the table. You've never really moved that far away from the area, have you? No, I'm, I'm about a quarter of a mile from where, where I've grown up, uh, just outside a little village called Cum. It's called Royal Cum now. But uh, no, I I moved to Cardiff for a, f- a few years, but I just never felt at home there, and I just couldn't wait to get back. Mm. And I moved back, and I've been here back home now for fifteen years, I think. So a lot of your friends, presumably, are still the people you grew up with. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, uh, you know the same kind of people I knew thirty years ago. I still know them now, um, and uh, you know I'm never going to move away from where I am. I'm just I'm a valley boy, and and. And that's the end of it. You know, I tried to move to the cities, but it's not for me. The other thing that's always said about your childhood is that you were involved in boxing. So mm. how good were you? Did you pack much of a punch? Um, no, I was only... I mean, I had, I think I had either 15 or 16 uh, fights as a kid. Um, actually won them all as well. But, uh, I mean, I was only, you know, so light. It was, you know, if you've mm. seen pictures of me, I was... I don't know what weight there would have been. Rizzler weight or something like that, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it was good, and uh, you know, my last fight they had that the opponent didn't turn up, and one of the other fellas' opponents didn't turn up, and he was a couple of stone heavier than me, and and uh, they just said, "Oh, do you want to go in together and sort of like an exhibition bout and take it easy for the other fella? Because obviously a lot heavier." And I said, "Yeah, yeah, fine," and he bashed me up a bit, uh, a couple of black eyes, split nose, and uh, that was the last time I ever set foot in mm-hmm. a boxing ring. Not surprisingly, really. And mm-hmm. where did snooker fit into all that then? I was still playing as well. I mean, I was just like, you know, it'd be some nights snooker, some nights training, or, or even both, you know. But snooker was my always uh, my only sport I ever wanted to, to do. I mean, you know, I, I remember I used to get on a bus 
my nan used to drop me off at a bus stop the year on a bus for school and uh, I'd go up two blocks the bus would pick up some more kids then to get to school mm. and I'd jump off and run to the stoop all day my, my father knew but I don't think my mother and nan knew because when, when I used to make sure I used to go to school he used to pick me up at the bus stop when the bus dropped the kids off he used to jump on two blocks down my nan would be waiting for me and I'd jump back off as if, if I'd just come home from school I was on and off that bus like you couldn't believe you look to me like someone to whom the game just came naturally at an early age. But was that the case? Did you find that it came easily to you? Um, no, not at all. I mean, I used to practice so much. You know, as soon as I get up in the morning, it was just uh, snooker balls going through my head. I just had to get to the stoop or a club or something, even if it was pool, anything. And, you know, it was just nothing else was on my mind, really, other than just play snooker. I mean, I was no good. I used to get beat by everyone. Um, but the next day I'd be up back there. We used to play for 50 pences then. It'd be, you put your name down, it'd be eight, nine, 10 people on the board. You get one shot each. Obviously, if you pot, you carry on. And then a winner takes a man at the end. I mean, I, I never won nothing for years. Uh, but I kept going back every day playing for them 50 pences. And what sort of age were you then, Mark, when you uh, started to show some promise? Um, I, I don't know, about 11, 12, I was, couldn't win anything. And 13, I was playing in the... The same kind of games, only 50 pences. But I started winning a couple, you know. And then when I got 13, made my first century break, started beating the older boys. And then I think from 13, 14, 15, I thought, I'm not too bad at this. I can hold my own with all the ones that I've grown up with that I couldn't beat. And, and all of a sudden, now I'm beating them. From then on, I thought, you know, maybe... I could make it. When you think of Welsh sports over the years, I think one era a lot of people go back to is the great rugby teams and rugby players of the 1970s. And it just so happened that when that era was coming to an end, snooker was exploding and Wales had three of the best players around, Reardon and Griffiths and Mountjoy. Was that a big factor, do you think, in the fact that so many youngsters then came out of Wales in the later years? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, when I was a youngster, you know, I used to play. I went to Terry Griffiths' house once to play him, played with, at Doug Mountjoy's house once to play him and it was just, you know, knowing you go into these people who was quite famous back at the mm -hmm. time to their houses and playing them was just like, oh, I can't believe it. I've got the Terry Griffiths out, Mountjoy's mm -hmm. house. I never played Raiden or anything like that, but, and then I used to go to the club and practice with him a couple of times. Uh, it's just something like, when you're a schoolboy, you're looking up to these people and all of a sudden you're in their house playing them on their own table, you know, it's just, it's a mad experience and, and, and one I used to, uh, really, really like. You have become part of a sort of big three yourself. You're probably sick of hearing the term class of 92 to refer to <coughs> the three of you. My recollection of it, though, is that when you were all starting out, all the focus was actually on Ronnie and John, and maybe your potential was a bit overlooked. But I imagine that probably suited you quite well. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, to be honest, I get embarrassed when people to, to mention that the class of 92 all the time to me because, you know, you shouldn't be classing me in the in the style of class, Higgins and O'Sullivan, they've always been you know, the best two players I've ever seen in my life. I was just lucky enough to come through in the, in the same year as them. But you know, when people class me in that kind of like, competition, I get a bit embarrassed because you know, I'm nowhere near. Well, you've got standard. three world titles. Yeah, I mean, there's only one behind John. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've nicked a lot of tournaments off them in the same mm. era as well as Henry. But you know, I do get a bit embarrassed when they try and count. Uh, compare me with MP because it's just night and day. Okay, well, when you did turn pro then in 92, I mean, you started to make an impact 
fairly quickly, actually, and got some good results against top players. Would you say that maybe the pro game wasn't as difficult as you expected it to be, or was it pretty much as you'd anticipated? No, I think it was difficult. I think it's a lot more difficult turning pro back then than it is now. It's a lot easier, I feel, now to make a good living at the game than it was back then. Uh, you know, we used to have to go to Blackpool for months on end, played eight, nine, ten games in one tournament. Hopefully you get to the end and you get to the Europe 8 to 9, 10, 10 games in another tournament and all the way down the line, six, seven tournaments. And then you go back to the first one where the top 16 come in and then you do all that. Uh, and now you can just win one game and you're on four or five thousand pounds now. You have to win probably 11 games then. Mm. Even though the, you know, there's a thousand pros, there's a lot of them that was, you know, not very good, let's be fair, but, you know, you still had to win so many matches. Um, it was difficult, but uh, I enjoyed every minute of it. And, you know, it, I think it gave me and, and probably John and Higgins the grounding we needed to play all them games before the top players come in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it st stood us in good stead. Do you feel, though, that your standard was perhaps better equipped for the professional game than you had maybe expected um, it to be? Yeah, I did, yeah. Because back then we used to play in pro-arms every Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There was a pro-arm somewhere, Birmingham, London. It was always London, actually, Birmingham. Everywhere, there's always Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and I used, to, I used to enter every single one. And there was always a thousand pound a winner, maybe 800, but I went to every one and for years. Um, I never won one, never ever got close to winning one. I think may have got to the a semi or quarter of one of them, but I never won anyone. It was a, so many good players around then, it was unbelievable. But uh, you know, it was just playing Monday to Thursday, knowing I'm gonna up at four o'clock in the morning, driving to London with a few other boys. And just playing in the tournament, it was just, it was just great days, and 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 unfortunately that amateur scene now is is mm. it seems like it's dead and is there's no grounding for these youngsters coming through. They're just turning pro. Uh, a lot of them think they've already done it before they've actually won any games. Matthew Stevens led 13-7. It was a commanding lead. Another couple of frames, and it would have been. An impregnable yeah. lead. But Mark Williams showed amazing resilience to recover, to win by 18 frames to 16. Bearing in mind everything you've said, that you struggled to actually become good at the game early on, you maybe didn't rate yourself as highly as John and Ronnie, although I think a lot of people would perhaps disagree with that. Were you surprised then that you found yourself 25 years of age your world champion and you've underlined it as well by getting to number one at the same time um yeah absolutely i mean it obviously was my dream if i could ever be world champion world number one that's what i aim for um i didn't realistically think i would ever uh, do it to be honest um but when it did come along it was like well i've done it um what, what do i do now is like mm. that 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 dream and the thing i was chasing i've got it and then all of a sudden, I didn't really know what to do and how to handle it properly, I suppose. And then took my foot off the gas a bit and wasn't play, playing as much as I should have probably done. Because I, I sort of like had nothing left to aim for. So I got it and then let myself go a little bit. That weekend that you won the World Championship, you had two great comebacks actually in the semi-final against John Higgins and then against your good pal Matthew Stevens in the final. I think that was when it was really underlined to all of us, Mark, just how good your temperament was and how good you are at staying calm under pressure. Is, is that just your personality or is it something you've had to work on or is it maybe a bit of both of those things? 
Um, I, I don't think I've, I've worked on it. I've always just been the same, you know, even as a junior. I've, I mean, the worst thing, I've always said it since I was oh, a kid, the worst thing you can do is lose, and, and, and that's it, you know. Um, and then you go practice for the next tournament, and the worst thing is you're going to lose. Um, and that's the worst thing that can happen, and, and, I, and I take that into every game. And, you know, so what if you lose? It's not the end of the world. You've got another tournament next month or whatever. Just get on with it. There's no point... If you beat yourself up at the table when you miss shots and I should have won that match and should have done this, you're going to find it very difficult to calm yourself down under pressure, thinking like that. And I've just always, always thought, you know, I go for my shots. If I leave them in, I'm not, uh, I don't mind. I've never really been bothered of what people, the, the like commentators and what they say. I'm not really interested. If I see the shot and I want to go for it, I'll go for it. I'm not interested in someone saying you shouldn't have gone for that. It's my game. I'm out there. I can do what I want. And uh, I, I always prefer going out if I lose on a pot, on a pot, a mad pot, and a bad safety. Mm. Um, yeah, I've just, I've just always been like that. I mean, I think if a lot of players just think themselves the same kind of way, it's not as easy to do as you think. Then they'll do a lot better. You know, if, if there's nothing better, if you were playing someone and you can see them beating themselves up in the corner of shots they missed, it just gives your opponent so much more belief and, and and you know you sort of got them you know don't try not to show your opponent anything you've always really had that attitude so when you came into the pro game and you saw how some players get down on themselves and beat themselves mm. up over defeats and setbacks did that surprise you that it was like that um yeah because i never do it i mean you can count on one hand uh the matches i've lost and i've been upset by them and gone home and and still upset them the day after. It just don't happen. I mean, as soon as I lose, I shake their hand. Obviously, you, I don't want to lose. I want to win. But when I when I lose, you've lost. There's nothing you can do about it. Why mourn about it? Just carry on with it. You, you know, your life or your day, whatever. Just nothing you can do about it. You say there you lost your focus a bit after winning the World Championship for the first time in 2000. But, of course, you won it again three years later, and you'd won the UK and the Masters that season. So how did you manage to get that motivation back then in between? That's a good question. It was just, you know, obviously you get into rut. When you win, you get into a, you keep winning. And then obviously when you start losing, you get into a rut and you keep losing. And I just thought to myself, well, if I want to get back up the rankings, I, I know what i got to do. Um, I know how much i got to practice. And, you know, I'd done it. I went back to... Dedicating myself and practicing all the amount of hours you wouldn't believe, you know. Um, and, and I then I got back to the top, which no one thought I could ever do. And uh, it was sort of pulling your fingers up, I suppose. A few people who thought your time had gone, really, and, and you'd done it. And unfortunately, I got back to the top again and took my foot back off the gas again. Yeah, well, for the next seven or eight years, really, after that, you were still a good player and getting good results. But I don't think anyone thought you were really living up to your potential. One thing about that era that those of us who were around the game at the time remember, and it's something you've spoken about, there was a really bad atmosphere at tournaments because there was all the politics going on, people were falling out with each other. And that's not the sort of environment that someone like you wants to be in. So do you think that was something that maybe dampened your enthusiasm? Yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, it wasn't really a good place to go in a players' lounge. It was always bitterness everywhere. I mean, not like now you can go into the you know, tournament players' lounge now, and you're going to have a laugh with almost every player in there. But it wasn't like that back then. There was a lot of in-house fighting, and there wasn't many tournaments. 
and it was just you know you couldn't wait to play a match and then go back to your hotel room really or all mm-hmm. I used to do when I'd give a bingo or something like that just it wasn't nice hanging around the players lounge. The blue finishes on the floor, but that doesn't matter. Mark Williams clinches the title with a break of 77. Mark Williams beats Ken Doherty by 18 frames to 16 to win the £270,000 first prize and win the Embassy World Championship for the second time. He got back to number one again in 2011 after all that era and then it sort of fell away a bit to the point where you were talking about retirement as recently as 2017. Was it a case with you, because it's certainly the sense I get, that once you had decided you were going to continue playing, that you took an attitude of, right, if I'm going to do this, I'm really going to do it properly now and you started working with different coaches and Mm. trying new things? Uh, Yeah, I I was... um I did want to retire. There's not no two ways about it. I did. I, I spoke to my wife. I said, "Look, I really think I, I like to retire." Blah blah blah. And you know, I was even talking about moving abroad somewhere to live. And you know, she just we had a good chat about it for a few days. And and she said, "Well, she wouldn't even entertain the idea until the kids were all eighteen and moved out." And she said, "What, what are you going to do?" You know, what are you going to do? You play golf now anyway and play snooker. So why don't you just carry on? And when the kids are all 18, then we'll have another chat about it. So, you know, after a couple of weeks, I thought, yeah, OK, you know, I'm going to carry on, but I'm not going to carry on the way I'm going because there was just no point. I was getting beat uh, going home. And then I, it was uh, Lee Walker that said, he was asking me for a long time to get involved with Steve Feeney and Sight Right, and I always put it off. Uh, it's a standard joke with us. I've always called it sight wrong for years and years. Um, and he just kept on and on and on. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to carry on, I'm going to give it a go. And uh, he arranged, he brought Steve to my house. And we had, well, 20 minutes I was with him. Because uh, it's amazing what he does. It's totally different to any other coach thing. You know, he can show you uh, everything just out to play with your eyes. Just, you have to try his art to explain. But within 20 minutes, I just thought, yeah, that's for me. That, that that makes sense, and and then I, I used that, and I practiced like you wouldn't believe. You still got to practice no matter what you do, and uh, just give me a new new sense of belief. And you know, I played some of the best that I played for for donkeys years, and you know, without Stevens and Sightright, I would never have got back to the top of the rankings, or never would have won nowhere near winning a world championship. And uh, you know, them couple of years. I think I got the quarterfinals of almost every tournament, won a few, and won the world to cap it off. And, you know, I played some of the best stuff I've ever played. When it got to the 2018 World Championship, you'd shown a good bit of form during the season. You'd won a couple of tournaments. And we were all saying, yeah, Mark Williams could win the World Championship again. When it actually happened, it was like, wow, this is incredible because it's been 15 years. And even though we'd all expected it, it still came as a little bit of a shock because you'd gone so far down the rankings a year or so earlier. I did get a sense from you, actually, just at the end of that final frame against John and that amazing final there was, that even you seemed a little bit dazed that it was like, I can't actually believe that I've come this far and done it in such a short space of time. Would there be some truth in that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of world championships I went into. Um, I sort of knew I may win one game, two games tops, and that was it. But going into the 2018, because of the season... 
and I was just so consistent that, you know, I I just looking at the draw and I looked at everything. I thought I'm definitely going to be in the semi-finals. I just couldn't see myself not getting to the semi-finals. And uh, you know, once I'm in the semi-finals, then I'm thinking, you know, I've got a chance to win it. You're still thinking, well, I'm not too sure, but uh, you know. And then I'm obviously scraped through the semi-final. I could have gone either way, and. Uh, when I got the finals, probably the best match match I've ever been involved with. All the way through, it was just I took a massive lead. He kept coming back, and then the last session was just nuts. It was a 50-60 in front all the time. He kept clearing up, and uh, not for one minute did my head drop. Uh, I missed a pink to win it mm-hmm. uh, a frame earlier. He dished up. Not for one second did I think, "Oh, I've blown my chance." It was no nerves in my body at all. I wasn't shaking at all. And uh, I come out and probably made one of the best breaks I've ever had. But uh, I've been lucky in the way in my career that I hardly ever shake, even if I'm under pressure. I'm never shaking. My hardly ever my hands or legs are shaking. The odd occasion it does, but under the most extreme pressure, I for some reason I don't know. I just seem to go even more relaxed. When Alex Higgins won the World Championship again, Mark, after a long gap, he famously had one child in the arena with him. Now, you had three kids, all three of them, with you on that night. Usually, when someone wins something like that for the first time, that's always the most special. Is there maybe a chance that 2018 was the most special? Because the three boys hadn't even Mm. been born the previous times you'd won it, and now they were all there to see it, and they'll have that memory with them forever. Yeah, without doubt, um, it's the best moment of feeling in my life uh, as a snooker player. Uh, that's the only tournament they've ever seen me win. I've always been China, Ireland or whatever. they never seen me win, win one. So to have them there as well. And it's only when I look back and see little replays of the frames and they're up in the, up in the stands and when John keeps cleaning up on me, they're biting in nails and head in their hands. And, you know, they're the ones look under pressure. I was calm as, a, mm. as a, anything down there. But it's only when you see them after you're thinking... All the emotions they must go through, just watching. Because I watch when my friends play, I hate it. I mean, I, my hands go all sweaty, my hands are sticky and shaky, and, and that's just watching someone else. But when I'm playing, I don't get none of that. So I, I know watching it come them, some, some of them clips back, and then obviously they come out at the end, and uh, it was just probably the best. Well, it is, it is without doubt the best snooker day of my life really you were 43 then you'd been 25 when you first won it normally in a situation like that you'd expect that when you win it as a youngster you go wild with the celebrations and then when you win it again as a middle-aged man with three kids it's all a bit more low-key but you did it the other way around yeah I had uh I had a pint of milk for my first championship win and then I just snuck off early out to the party afterwards and my last win well I lost lost count how many bottles of beers we had we was all in the after party singing away and it didn't start till late probably about 12 or something but I think it was 7 o'clock in the morning we left come out it was bright light went back to the hotel for another couple and oh, I was just I had all my friends there obviously the missus was there kids were in bed after about 2 in the morning but it was just I was just like a just like a night out on the town with all your mates and, and your missus and kids you know it was just brilliant What a match, what a performance, John Higgins gets out of 
Robinson cracks his hands and well played. And the family go berserk. Mark Williams, he was going to give up four years ago, but he's now back in the big time. John Higgins giving it his all. But in the end, Mark Williams was just too strong. And Mark Williams becomes the 2018 Betfred World Snooker Champion for the third time. You've talked in the aftermath of that and a number of times during your career, Mark, about how you feel you haven't perhaps got the recognition that you've deserved at times when you've been world number one, when you've been world champion. And yet you talk, as you did earlier, so modestly about your own achievements. Do you think maybe if you bigged yourself up a bit more, which I know would not be your style at all, that maybe then people would give you more credit for what you've done? Possibly. Um, I've I've never really been in it to get credit for what I've done. You know, uh, me personally, I think I probably... With what I've done in the game, probably, I'd say, overachieved, maybe a little bit. Um, but surely that's but something you should get credit for anyway. P- possibly, but I can't do anything about uh, people or accolades or getting giving me any credit or something. I've just just getting on with it, you know. And uh, what I've done in, in, in the game with the era I come through with, like I said, with Higgins, uh, O'Sullivan and Hendry there at the top, not, not forgetting all the other excellent players as well. I'm more than happy with what I've achieved and I think, like I said, I think I've overachieved with the standard that was about back then. And whether it's been about getting recognition or anything else, you've never been slow to speak your mind and been involved in one or two relatively minor controversies over the years. But I sense with you, the last thing you ever want to do is upset anyone, but you just feel in this current age where everyone's so careful about what they say and political correctness and everything else, that you just operate with no filter. And I think a lot of people find that actually quite refreshing. Yeah, sometimes uh, I probably should uh, think before I open my mouth, but sometimes it just comes out of my mouth. Uh, having said that, I've been a pro, I don't know, 25, 20, how many years? Long, you're in your 30th yeah, year now, Mark. 30 yeah. years, and I've only ever been fined once from mm. um, Will Snooker for you know, saying something I shouldn't have said. So I suppose one, one fine in 30 years, years is not too bad of a... Of a thing, yeah, but I don't go out to upset anyone. That's all I ever want to do is have a laugh, wind people up, and people try and wind me up, and and that's all I really ever want to do is have a laugh every time I, I go out anywhere. To be honest, and to that end, you always—it's been noticeable throughout your career—have had someone with you. You never seem to come on your own to a tournament. Either Joe comes with you, or one of the boys, or some of your mates. Do you think that? has helped you survive, as it were, so long on the tour and being away from home all that time. The fact you always have company with you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, f- for me, I hate being on my own. It's just boring, you know, especially if you go to China. I mean, sometimes you can be up, you know, 11 o'clock at night and won't go to bed till 10 in the morning just because your body clock and jet lag. So if you've got someone with you, at least you can do something, you know, whatever it is, if you, if you practice or whatever or go out for food or whatever. It is. Um, I th- don't think people realise how... It can be a really lonely place when you when you're out and about for you know weeks on end on your own. Just go practice back to your hotel room, uh, especially abroad because, like I said, you're up in all different hours of the day. You never your body clock is so strange. If you're on your own, it can. Some people like their own company, but. I don't really get bored really quick and I've got to be doing something, you know. I'm going to throw a few subjects at you now, Mark, and I just want you to say whatever comes into your mind, (laughs) which I know is not something you ever need to be asked to do. This will be my second fine coming, (laughs) is it? Okay. Ronnie O'Sullivan. Best player I've ever seen in my life. Uh, Played with him since I was 10 years of age and uh, 
uh, he's still going like myself and probably the only snooker player I'd, I'd pay to watch. Jackson Page. Oh, potential. you got the potential to be very good if he keeps dedicating himself. Controversial break-offs. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my break-offs causing a lot of stir. I don't know why, because uh, a few few shots later, it's back to normal. But the more they don't like it, the more I'm mm. going to do it. Stephen Hendry. Stephen Hendry used to be very good. <laughs> and one thing you'd change about the game or the circuit? I think I'd change about the game. Um... I like to stop all these, you know, best of threes and best of five matches and get back to, you know, we was years ago when the UK was 17 and it had that special feeling about it, stuff like that. The shorter formats, I think. I suppose we've got to go with the times, but if I could change it, I'd go back to the longer formats. You talk often about how you think about retirement from the game. You've mentioned it a couple of times in the course of this interview. And then at other times, you seem really focused and you want to knuckle down again and get back to achieving success. Would it be fair to say that throughout your career, and still now, you go through phases in terms of your relationship with snooker? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I'm never I'm never going to be tired. I've made my decision now. I'm, I'm carrying on a plane until I drop off the tour, however long that is. Um, I know it's a, it's a tough one. I know I think I could, if I dedicated myself and and I know what what I had to do and put the hours in, I could get back up right at the top of the rankings again. Like really, number one, literally? Maybe not number one, but I could get close. Um, but I'm not prepared to do what I know I have to do to, to, to get back up as high as, as that. And I'm happy with that. I've made that decision. I'm just going to play couple of hours, a few hours every day, two two hours every day is enough for me and just see how long I can stay on the tour for really. If I dedicate myself, I think I could get right back at the rankings, but it's got to come a time where you can't keep doing it and I think the time now is just to enjoy it more than worry about winning tournaments. Do you think there might come a time though in a couple of years where you might see it differently and you might be willing to do that again? Possibly, if my golf does start to decline and I go hmm. back up to 20 handicap maybe, but... Uh, at the moment, I don't, I can't, I can't see it. But you know, I change my mind quite a bit. You know, even when I'm playing, I mean, I, I hardly ever play two days on the trot, the same cue action, same stance, same bridge. I'm changing stuff all the time. You know, even in matches, I, I flick through different things. I never, I never do the same thing in two matches really. So, you know, I'm saying you know, I'm not gonna play seven eight hours a day because I just don't think I can do it anymore. You asked me in six months, I could be saying to you, I'm back playing eight, ten hours a day. I just, I don't know, but I, I can't see it. And you mentioned golf there. What is it about Welsh sporting legends that they seem to become more interested in playing golf than their own sports? It seems to have happened with Gareth Bale, and at times it seems to be the case with you as well. How good a player are you? Uh, I'm, I'm average, I think. You know, I'm, my realistic handicap is probably about eight to ten. Something well, like that's that. not average, Mark. Yeah, yeah That's pretty good going. Well, yeah, it's not bad, but <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it can be a lot worse than that's the, prob- that's the problem. But I don't know, I just love the game. I, I played years ago, and then I, I didn't play golf for 10 to 12 years. I gave it up, and I've started back about two years ago now, and I'm uh, just back in love with it now, and I play as much as I can, really. Is it true you play Christmas Day? I played Christmas morning, yeah, with my boy, yeah. We had we went up to <laughs> got Bryn Meadows had nine holes in the morning about, 11 o'clock, I mean, come back for some Christmas dinner then. But, uh, yeah, it was good, yeah. 
just the perfect day, really. I suppose there was a perception when we would have been growing up that once you got to your 40s in snooker, you probably weren't going to achieve very much. Now, you and John and Ronnie and one or two others have blown that out of the water. But I think that perception was because the previous generation did stop achieving in their 40s because you guys coming through were so good and swept them away. But the fact that you guys are still doing it now, does that really reflect the fact that the younger generation haven't been good enough to usurp you? Um, yeah, I think I think that is it. I think uh, the players coming through are not good enough to to knock us off our perch. You know, I suppose if you want to put it like that. But you know, I think we did have, like I said before, we had, we had much better grounding with all the amateur tournaments building up, and these youngsters now have got no no decent amateur tournaments to play in. Really, um, you know, they just turning pro, coming up against a top player, getting beat. You know. We had really good grounding, like I said, you know, there was tournaments everywhere, junior tournaments, under-18s, under-21s, everywhere, every weekend there was something, you know, and I, I think that has something to do with our longevity as well, and, you know, the other reason could be that the players coming through were just not good enough to knock, especially them two off their perch, I think they could be, at, them pair could be at the top of them rankings for however long they want to be, there's no question, it's just um, whether or not they... They want to put in all that work to stay up there, you know. And whenever you do stop, Mark, I could see you being someone who just disappears, that you might not want to be involved in the game, the professional side anymore. Would that be right? Absolutely spot on, yeah. Mm -hmm. Once I do uh, finish, drop off a tour and and finish, you probably never see me at a tournament again. Uh, I probably, yeah, you, you wouldn't see me at a tournament again. I'd be gone. And I've got to ask you one final question. Is there anything that gets you really wound up? Oh, it's hard to imagine. Um, not really, no. Try and think. I mean, all my mates have been trying to wind me up for forty years, and none of them have succeeded <laughs> yet. You can ask any of them, but let me th- think if there's anything winding me up. Anything that disturbs that calm demeanor not really. you always have? People moaning, probably. Okay. Well, you haven't done much moaning here. It's been great sitting down with you, and it's great that you're still around the game after all these years, and we wish you all the best for whatever the future holds. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. On next week's World Snooker Tour podcast, I'll be joined by Irish teenager Aaron Hill, who, among other things, will be reflecting on the extraordinary reaction to that win over Ronnie O'Sullivan. I looked at Twitter the next day, and I was number two trending. You had the likes of, like, Jorgen Klapp below me and stuff, and it was... That was, that was brilliant to see. Um, yeah, the next the next morning I got woken by a phone call and I was it was I got woken by it and I was like, "What? Who's this?" And I answered a, a big sleepy voice. I said, "Oh," and uh, it was BBC. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, "Oh, can you phone me back in five minutes?" I was because I had a sleepy voice. So that's coming up next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>